Well, good morning to you, church. Good morning. Uh, we continue our series that we're calling Emotionally Healthy uh, Spirituality. And uh, as we have discussed uh, quite a bit recently, what we seek to hope develops foster, um, be fostered amongst us is Christ-likeness. That we want to be a people that are like Jesus. And when we talk about being like Jesus, we aren't saying that we will put on a robe, grow out our hair, and grow out beards. Though, I am attempting two of those three things. What we're hoping for is that there would be a deep transformation that would happen in our hearts. That what we would see take place is that our inner beings would be made like the character and nature of Jesus. And so one of the ways, one of the ways that we're going to be doing that is going to be talking about being a people that would have health across the scope of who we are, that we would be a people that would be emotionally healthy in our following Jesus. Today, we'll be talking about our learned patterns. We've got two quotes from you, one from Pete Scazzaro, and then the following one is from John Mark Comer. As we go back in order to go forward. This takes us to the very heart of spirituality and discipleship in the family of God. Breaking free from the destructive, sinful patterns of our past to live the life of love that God intends. The second quote. Very few of us want to revisit the past. But the reality is our past has influence on our presence. Who we are has been shaped by where we come from. For, for most of us, our family of origin is the single greatest influence on our life, for good or for evil. And no matter how healthy your family and childhood experience was, at some level, every family is dysfunctional. We all inherit ways of living from our family of origin and culture that are out of sync with the way of Jesus. So a key task in our apprenticeship to Jesus is relearning how to be human in relationship with the Father. But first, we have to go back to go forward. You very likely know the story. Once again, we'll start at the very beginning. God speaks clearly. Let there be light. Let there be space between the waters. Let us make man in our image. And after each one of these statements that go on, we find that what is fascinating about Scripture is that it points out that God saw. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. That, that word good is the Hebrew word tov. It means goodness. It means pleasurable. It means excellent. It means beautiful. On the sixth day, God saw everything he made. There it was functioning and flowing together all that he designed, and he looked over it and said, it was very tov. It was very good. Then God caused the human to fall asleep, and he took the side of man, and there he created 
E. Now, I bring us there to show you what the biblical authors do. We'll see humanity's actions reflect God's actions, but it is a marred image. It is a skewed and broken pattern that gets played out. Here's what we see of the pattern of God in the very beginning, is that God speaks, God sees, and he sees that it is good, that it is tov. And he takes man, and then he gives woman. But let's visit the story of the fall. Humanity is placed in the garden, and there the Lord gives them dominion over everything. A clear word is spoken to humanity. You are free for, to eat from all of the fruit that is there in the garden, but there is one tree that you are not to eat of. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I wondered how this has played out, because we're not really told directly that it was all in the, happening in that same moment, that there was the serpent and he spoke to the woman and then she immediately grabbed the fruit. But what we, it's, it might be playing out is that the serpent subtly maybe spoken something to her and then maybe after a few days of constantly looking at that tree, she was enticed with the serpent's words ringing in her mind. But what we do find out is the woman saw the fruit. We're told she saw the fruit and that it was good to the eyes. She took it. She gave it to her husband, who was right there with her. Then they hid in their shame. We'll see the, the marred playing out of this same pattern you'll see this pattern actually play out over the pages of Scripture. I'm going to take you through quite a few of them, but again, you, you'll see this pattern, and, and actually one of the things I want to make sure that we point out is that it actually won't happen in this same order every single time, and you won't see every single element, but you will see this pattern play out over the pages of Scripture. The first one I'll take you to is in Genesis chapter 6. It's this strange story about the sons of God and the daughters of man. And you almost read it and feel like you're reading a story written by Tolkien. And it's the story of these creatures called the Nephilim. But what you'll see described in the, in the pages of Genesis 6, or the words of Genesis 6, is that the sons of God saw the beautiful, the Hebrew word there is tov, the sons of God saw the beautiful daughters of man, and they took them for themselves. Genesis chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah were given a word of promise from the Lord. And they were told that they would have descendants. They would outnumber the stars of the sky. But that wasn't happening. Sarah was barren. And so there in Genesis chapter 16, what we find is that they saw their maidservant, Hagar. Sarah took her, she gave her to her husband, and now there's conflict in the home. So Abraham tells Sarah, 
She's your maidservant. Do what is tov to her in your own sight. Judges chapter 6, verse 7, at the collapse of Jericho, the Israelites aren't to take any of the plunder for themselves. That is the word spoken from God to the nation of Israel. But a man named Achan sees the plunder. And amongst that plunder, he sees that there was a beautiful robe. He sees that there was a tov robe in his eyes, and he took it and he hid it. We'll keep on going just for a couple more. First Samuel, the plan for Israel was that they would be a set-apart nation. But they come to Samuel, the prophet, and they say, we want to be like all the other nations around us. Would you give us a king so that we can be like all others? So in this story, Saul, the king, becomes the fruit. We're told that when it's time for him to be anointed, well, these are the words that are written in the book of First Samuel, that the the people say, behold, he is hiding himself among the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. The last one that I'll take you to is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, now at evening time, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the, king's roofs, uh, on, on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and took, and the woman was very tove, in appearance. Then David sent messengers, and the messengers took her, had her brought, and then when she came to him, he slept with her. And then in this instance, there was a voice that was spoken to David, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah? And after David sleeps with Bathsheba, excuse me, he attempts to cover up, hide all of his actions. See, the authors of Scripture are very clear in pointing out to us, listen, we are living out the patterns of our ancestors. Biblical authors show us, on how, show us how we keep living out this same pattern. And while these stories give us a grand view of humanity living out the same pattern, we can zoom in to our own lives and find that we have our own patterns that we're constantly living out and struggling with and dealing with. What, a year and a half ago or so, and I'm not saying this was a, a bad thing, Larissa's family moved in, her parents moved in with us, and in that moment, living with them, it was an illuminating season. Not in a bad way. I'm going to emphasize that. But it gave me greater context for who Larissa is. Because to see her parents' dynamics, their relationships play out, gave me greater clarity to who she is. Let's go back to Pete Scazzaro. He says, in emotionally healthy churches... People understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. They've realized from Scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kinds of persons they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, 
but the family we have grown up in is the primary and, except in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. Now let me pause and say this, that there is no way that in this Sunday morning that we're going to, able to be able to dive into the deep intricacies and complexities of your family of origin. But I would hope that what we can simply do this morning is to be able to identify that we are a people that live out the patterns of our past. But there is hope in Jesus that those family patterns can be broken. Or, for the instances in which they are good, they can be further lived into. But let's talk about these elements of the story laid out for us in Scripture. The first one that I want to take us to is that one of the patterns that we see play out is that we define good for ourselves. What do we see in that first story is that humanity has learned to define good from their own eyes. And from Adam and Eve onward, we have to now wrestle with the fact that we begin defining good disconnected from our relationship with him who is truly good. We have a distorted view of what is tov. We think that a way will be good, and we act on it, and then we live in the wake of those decisions. The accuser, the Satan is highlighted, the serpent is highlighted in that first story. And I believe what, what everyone's, or what biblical authors are doing as those, the rest of the stories play out, it's like that they want us to be able to catch that we keep falling for that same lie. That he wants to take us from a place where we would live away from the reality of God's truth. His word spoken over us. And we keep embracing an alternative view of what good is. We bite into the lie that our view of good is true. And in Jesus, the hope is that we would come to a place where we say, teach me what truth is. I have a distorted view of reality. Because I have learned and lived out false definitions of good. But in you, there's abundance of life. There is a definition of living built on what is truly and actually good. For a whole lot of us, through our family of origin, we have learned scripts for how the world works. Let me go back to Pastor John Mark Comer. He says it this way. From our family of origin and from key life events, we have developed something called narrative scripts. Narrative scripts are messages from our life that inform our behavior. These scripts are essentially our way of making sense of the world around us. Our narrative scripts are usually rooted in our family of origin and are often linked to messages that were spoken over us, about us, or to us. These scripts can also come from our understanding and interpretation of ourselves through difficult or traumatic life events. Since narrative scripts are largely rooted in our family of origin, and our family of origin is not perfect, we can rightly assume 
that not all of our scripts may be true or accurate, meaning it is essential for us to identify and to learn the narrative scripts that have and are influencing our lives. And so in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro gives us 10 things that we can look at that are often formed or given to us from our family of origin. Things that have taken root in who we are and the scripts that begin to play out in our minds. So things like money, our view of money, how we evaluate, uh, we evaluate how our family deals with conflict. In our premarital sessions that Larissa and I get to have with soon-to-be married couples, conflict and communication is the place that we spend most of our time. Not most of our time, but it becomes so foundational. Of all of the subjects, it is the one that we spend the most time with. The way sex is talked about, or wasn't talked about, how sex is viewed, is a narrative script that we often learn from our families. How we handle grief and loss. Maybe a message was, get over it. Maybe there's a message that time will heal that grief. But how many of us have walked through grief and loss and have heard someone say something about the grief and loss that we are going through that has caused us to scratch our heads? Because we have learned narrative scripts of how we're supposed to walk through grief and loss. We've learned what to do with our anger. We've been given a script on the priority we should place on family. We have scripts for relationships. Don't trust people. Don't be vulnerable. This is how affection is to be shown and given. We have had communicated to us what our attitudes should be towards different cultures. And we were given a definition of success. For me, this one's tough. And it was even tough to reflect on this past week because we tried to teach our boys we're not so concerned about you being great at something. We care that you try. But when we're at soccer practice or watching them play in a soccer game, everything within me wants to just erupt in pride when they score a goal. Yes! You're the best! <laughs> and I realize that what I'm doing is that I'm teaching them in one way, through my words, how we view success as Madranos, but then in my actions, I might be demonstrating another way. And then I realize I'm going to have to pay for their therapy. <laughs> because I'm handing scripts to them. From our families, we've likely learned what to do with our feelings and emotions. Stuff them down, never talk about them. Did we express emotions in our family? Did we have the ability to define our emotions? Did we have strong and mature vocabulary for what we were feeling in our families of origins, right? All these things that we learn from the environments that we've grown up in. I'll just say, listen, the work of discipleship is to bring all of these definitions of good to the feet of Jesus. And to say, Lord, we desire to learn your way. 
And there will be things that we will get to celebrate. There will be things that we get to look at and say, man, that was good, what I learned from my family of origin. I think about my dad that I have to avoid telling him things that I like because what usually will take place is him going, mijo, why don't you get that for yourself? I'll pay for it. And I, I just love and celebrate the generosity that has been demonstrated to me through my father. But we also recognize there will be things that we have to mourn and there will also be things that we have to repent of. And like we talked about last week, at the end of Psalm 139, what we do is we come before the Lord and we say, see if there is any way of sorrow within me. See if there is any way within me that is idolatrous, that is a false representation of who you have designed me to be. The, the next thing that we see take place in this marred image is, is that we take. And, and part of, of the work that happens in our discipleship under Jesus is that we have to confront our destructive habits. Not only have we defined what is tov in our eyes, we have taken and we have passed on to the people around us. I like what Pastor Steve Cuss says. He says, if dysfunction is not named and addressed, it is transmitted down to the next generations. See, the authors of scripture teach us humanity has the propensity to take for themselves, to act selfishly. Our eyes first and foremost look to what is pleasing to us. And a tough work for us to do is to ask questions like, what has my family historically dealt with? Are there destructive patterns that are unique to who we are? Are there addictions that have run rampant through our family trees? And, and as I say all that, let me give a word of caution to us. Don't go and just try to dive into this work alone by yourself. But this is a work that I believe needs to be done amongst a good and healthy community that there would be trusted and wise people that you would walk through these things with. And if you would like, I would love to be in connection with you and we can recommend a Christian counselor to you that might be able to help you work through some of these issues. But unlearning these habits are hard work. I was reminded of that this past week. See, our, our youngest randomly came and hit the older brother, just because he was bored. So why not just hit your brother? <laughs> and my response was to calmly be a non-anxious presence in that place and say, you have to go to your room. And the response was, can I go into the guest room and build Legos instead? I said, no. You're not going to your room as a reward for hitting your brother. And the response to that was, well, timeouts are boring. <laughs> to which I responded, they are not supposed to be fun. They are supposed to teach you to not act that way. To which I heard shouts back to me, well, that hasn't worked. 
ever. He's learned a script. It's difficult. It's an ongoing and challenging work for these habits to be broken, for these patterns to, to shake free. The last one that I'll take us to is that we, the, the, the challenge in all this is that we tend to be a people that hide and not deal with and to not work through these things. And in this, I think about the movie Encanto. I watched Encanto with my boys, and I was just sitting there floored by the way that explored broken family systems and trauma and encouraging a people to actually deal with them. And so in the story of Encanto, what you'll see is that Abuela runs the show. She's defining reality for the family. She's letting them know what is good and what is not good. We don't talk about Bruno. And so meaning that the family lived with a false sense of goodness. The family lived with a false sense of what it was beautiful. And the trouble is, is that the suppressing of the truth and not dealing with their family trauma was breaking the house. Bruno was quite literally hidden away. And the family had enchanted gifts, but all of their own efforts of power, of beauty, of healing, of shape-shifting, wasn't keeping the house from crumbling. And so they had to hear the words of the truth-teller. They actually had to hear the words of the prophet. And so there was Maribel, and she's this incredible picture of health infecting the ill health of the family, encouraging them, we actually have to do the tough work of going through the pain that exists in our pasts. Don't avoid it. Don't hide it. Don't shush it. But actually go through it. And it was from there that the house could actually be more resilient. Our temptation is to hide, to avoid facing reality. And in doing so, we ignore the fact that our definitions of good, our learned scripts, our destructive habits are all alive in our lives. We can pretend they aren't there, but that doesn't change the fact that they are there. And because we don't go back, we remain frustrated and hurt in our present lives. And I heard it say, said this way, the truth will set you free, but not until it's done with you first. You see, we are to be a people that are called to live in the light. And friends, the light is an incredible disinfectant. It is living in the light that we're able to discover and experience the good hand of God upon us. Let's go back to this pattern. In Matthew chapter 4, what you'll see take place is that the devil brings Jesus 
up onto a high mountain. And it's there that the devil shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And, and, and the word spoken to him is, is that if you bow down to me, I will take this and I will give it to you. It's, it's the same pattern right there in front of us. And Jesus' response is, you shall worship the Lord and serve him only. His response is what humanity has been unable to do. In this moment, Jesus' view of what is good comes and lines up with the Father's view of what is good. He wasn't going to take for himself. And over the rest of the pages of the gospel narratives is that you see that now Jesus gives. And you'll see him. You'll see him take bread, look up to heaven, break it, and give it to others. And in, in his last meal with his disciples, he'll take, he'll break, and he'll give. And now, all of a sudden, we're able again to live in an alignment with God's view of what is good. As the worship team comes back up, let me read to you what might seem like an obscure passage, passage from the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, 39, 20, in Jeremiah 31, 29, it says, when that time comes, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth will grow numb. Rather, each person will die for his own sins. The teeth of the person who eats the sour grapes will themselves grow numb. I like the way the pastor Steve Cuss summarizes this. He says, Jeremiah was saying that a day will come when the gospel of God I completely wrote this wrong. <laughs> but let me, let me say what, what Steve Cuss is, is getting at is he's saying that there, what this passage is pointing to is that, that that pattern will be broken where the father's sins won't be passed on to the children, that it will be our own actions that, that, that will stay there because of the work of Jesus. He's the one that breaks us free from these destructive patterns that have been handed on from generation to generation. In Jesus, as part of this new family, we learn new patterns of living. And so again, we can come before him and say, see if there's any offensive way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Lead me in a way that is built upon your definition of good. Church, would you stand with me and let's answer back into song.